Hey guys, how are y'all? I'm glad to have y'all with us today. I'm glad y'all could help with our the start of our worship service. And y'all might have been wondering while we were doing all of that and while we brought the palm palms down and, and had this particular thing for you guys to do. So I want to start by explaining a little bit of that. But I want to ask to start with, do any of y'all like the Disney princess movies? Anybody? You, you do? You girls do? What about you guys? Do y'all like, maybe Maybe you don't like Disney princess movies. Do you like, uh, you know, Lord of the Rings or Micah does? Uh, or anything that's got kings and, and knights and orcs and all that kind of stuff in it? Y'all like that kind of stuff? No, you don't like that kind of stuff? Well, <laughs> some of these folks may think they're right there along with you, but... Um, so if you think about all those, all those movies, they all have a king in them, right? You've got Ariel's father, King Triton, Titan, Triton, right? You've got uh, uh, all the different kings that are in the Lord of the Rings series. And uh, we kind of grow up as, as kids, we grow up knowing what kings are and seeing kings in these movies and that sort of thing. And if you think about it, what, give me some, some ideas of what you know about a king. So what, what does a king wear? Anybody? Y'all can talk. It's okay. <laughs> what does a king wear? Go ahead. A crown, right? He's got a crown that's a gold, usually gold or silver on his head with all these jewels in it. A robe. Yeah, a robe. So a, a king has certain things that he wears, right? Uh, what about um, a scepter, right? A scepter that he walks with and he, he rules with. Uh, what, what does a king ride? What, what's something that a king might ride? A horse, right? Or a chariot? Uh, so a king always has this big, beautiful white horse, right, that you see him ride into town with and, uh, or lead his, lead his army with. Uh, what does a king do? Nothing? Who said nothing? <laughs> <laughs> Only the kids can answer now. Uh, what does a king do? He rules, right? What's, he, he makes judgments. So he, he, if, a, if people have a dispute, he makes a judgment. Uh, he does a number of things. Um, and does anybody know why we came in with palms today? What were we doing with that? Anybody? So in John chapter 12, and, and parents, if you want to take this and, and read this to your, your children today as your Sunday afternoon reading, or adults, if you want to read this as your Lord's Day reading, I encourage you to read this this afternoon. But in John chapter 12, we read about Jesus on the last week of his uh, life before his death on the cross. He enters into the, the capital city of Judea, which was Jerusalem. And as he enters that city... Um, the people of the city all come out and they start laying palm branches at his feet. And Jesus comes riding into the city of Jerusalem, riding on a young donkey. And the people all praise him and they call out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now when we read that, it can be a little weird to us because we, don't grow, we didn't grow up with a king. And we didn't grow up having a castle just down the road from us or going and, and welcoming, welcoming a king back from his latest victory or anything like that. 
But in the ancient times, and in Jesus' time, they would greet a king when he came into his, his city just like they greeted Jesus. They would lay their robes down on the ground. They would lay palm branches down on the ground. They would wave them in the air as a sign of their, really, their worship of the king to say that he was worthy of glory because of his great victory or because of who he was. And so when the people do this, when they welcome Jesus with palm branches, they're saying that Jesus is a king. And not only are they saying that he is a king, they're saying that he is the king. Because the Jews had waited for 700 years or more for a figure that would come called the Messiah. And the Messiah was going to be this great king that would conquer the world and, and rule in righteousness. And they were waiting on that. And Jesus, though, he was not the king that they expected. Even in just the way that he came into the city, he came in, did he ride on a white horse? No, he rode on a little donkey. And not only that, but Jesus was not the king that they expected in another big way. They expected a king that would come in and drive their oppressors out. He would drive out the Romans. He would drive out the tax collectors. He would drive out all those who had oppressed the people of Israel. But instead, Jesus came into Jerusalem and he drove out the religious leaders. And he convicted them of their own sin. And that turned that crowd that was singing praises to him into an angry mob a week later. And so Jesus did receive a crown from these people. But he didn't receive the crown that we expect. He didn't receive a crown of gold with jewels on it. Instead, Jesus received a crown of thorns. Now this is literally from a bush that is called the crown of thorns. And we think when we read about Jesus receiving a crown of thorns, we think that might be like a little blackberry briar or something like that. But notice the crown of thorns is too much thorns. This isn't something that would have been a little prick. In fact, when I was making this yesterday, I had one get me good in the hand, and it's not a very comfortable thing. Jesus received from the people that would, were praising him as Hosanna, he received a crown of thorns. And he did receive a robe, but it wasn't a robe of honor, it was a robe of shame. They put a robe on him and mocked him and laughed at him and called him the king of the Jews in Mocker. And Jesus was taken and judged by the, the false king of the day, and he was sent to his execution on a cross. But what they didn't know is that Jesus was acting as the real king that they needed in dying on the cross. Because one of the things I asked you, what does a king do? And y'all said he rules and he judges and things like that. But one of the greatest things that a king does for his people is a king defeats his enemies. A king defeats the enemies of the people. What is the greatest enemy that we have? The greatest enemy that we have is sin. The greatest enemy that we have is death. And Jesus came to die 
so that we could be forgiven of our sins. He died in our place for us. And so when he died, he took our place. He substituted his life for our life. But did Jesus stay in the ground? Did Jesus die and, and go be buried and, and stay there? No. What happened? He rose again from the dead, right? He defeated death for us. So Jesus, as the real king that we need, he did what we would not expect him to do. He didn't beat our, our physical enemies like the politicians that we don't like or the, the uh, systems of government that we don't like. He beat death and sin for us. And because of that, we have eternal life through Jesus. So if we trust in Jesus, we're part of his kingdom. We're part of the kingdom that will reign forever. So the reason that we do this is to remind ourselves of Jesus's kingship. And so these palms represent Jesus's rule as our king. So Miss Leah on the way back from Florida yesterday made some gifts for y'all. And these are crosses that are made out of the palm fronds that we have here today. And so these, these uh, crosses, I want to give them to you, and you take them home and keep them, and they're a reminder to you that the king that you really have, the king that you need, Jesus Christ, he did what you could not do. He died for your sins, and he rose again to, to give you eternal life. And so when you look at this, I hope you'll remember that the king that you have is a king who gave himself for you through the cross of Calvary. Okay? So as you leave, you can go back to your, your uh, places now, and as you do, y'all can come by and get one of these crosses and go to be seated. Mike is glad to be able to go to be seated. plenty of these left, so if you'd like to get one before you leave and maybe take it to your, your grandkids or, or your kids at home, you're welcome to do that. Heavenly Father, we come to you today knowing that your word is true. Lord, we know that you ultimately desire our good, and it is because you desire our good and our salvation that you have spoken to us by your prophets and ultimately and finally by your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, we know that your son is the true king, the, the king that we needed, not the king that we want, but he is the king that we need because he has come to uh, have victory, not over what we desire most, not over the, the immediate need that we have, but the real need that we have over our own sin and the death that is looming over each one of us. And it is because of what Jesus has done through his death and resurrection that we are able to meet today in celebration of his worthiness as the true son of God who has come as the Messiah that redeems the world from its sin and leads us into righteousness. So, Father, I pray that you would work through me as I preach this truth to these people today that they would hear and believe, and through that, that they would be changed. And Father, that we would leave this place ready to serve you and to worship and delight in you because of the cross of Christ. 
I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. So this morning we're going to be in Psalm 22. If you want to go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. And as you do, just as a reminder of where we've been. We've been, since I started on January the 17th, we've been going through a series on the doctrine of worship that I call Delighting in the Triune God. And we looked at, to start with, who God is. And then we move to why we should worship. And so we've been over the last four weeks looking at all the different reasons that the Bible gives, particularly the Psalms give, for why we should worship. So we saw, first of all, that we should worship because creation demands it. And by creation, we are designed as part of that creation to worship God. And then we saw that... Uh, that uh, God's control over creation demands it. So His sovereignty over this world and the fact that He knows all things and He uh, is, is powerful over all things and He is present with all things means that we should worship Him. And then lastly, last week we saw that uh, God's command demands that we should worship Him. So His Word demands our worship. And so I want to end this little sub-series on why we should worship with the final and to me the most important reason or justification for why we should worship. And that is we should worship because the cross of Christ demands our worship. And it seems appropriate that on Palm Sunday as we enter into what the church has traditionally called Holy Week, that we should be here and we should be at the point where we say that the main reason we worship is because of what Jesus has done for us. So to see this, I want to continue in our study of the Psalms and answering this question of why by reading all of Psalm 22. Now, that's a lot. And I want you to bear with me as I read all of that and you follow along as I read it. But as I read it, I hope that you will reflect on what this Psalm prophesies about the the coming Messiah who would die for the sins of the world. In fact, this psalm figures very heavily in the gospel stories. And you'll notice a lot of the things that we read as we go through Psalm 22 point to Jesus. So as I read this psalm and you follow along with me, just meditate on what this says about Jesus. Psalm 22, verse 1, God's Word says... My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you, our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you, they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, 
for trouble is near and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death for dogs encompass me. A company of evil doers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he cried to him. From you come my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nation shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the, to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet born, yet unborn, that he has done it. So there are two things that I want you to get from this long passage that we just went through today. Two points that I want to focus on from Psalm 22. The first is the Lord rescues the oppressed. And the second is the Lord, uh, the oppressed rejoice in the God of salvation. So first the Lord rescues the oppressed. And second, the oppressed rejoice in the God of salvation. So first, I want you to understand that the Lord rescues the oppressed. Now, when I use that word oppressed, that's actually kind of a buzzword in our day. But it's something that we as Americans, we don't really experience as, as much of the rest of the world does. We Americans have it better than we realize. While 90% of the world, if you can imagine this, 90% of the world lives on or subsists on $1 a day, the poorest American survives on about 200 times that. You know, something that we don't even think about, not just our income, but just the basic needs in our lives, we don't think the first thing about going to a faucet, 
taking a glass, filling that glass up, and drinking it. But there are many countries, the vast majority of countries in this world, you wouldn't dare do that unless you wanted to spend a week in the hospital or on the bed. Uh, well, not just on the bed, but uh, you know, near uh, a certain room in your house because of the water that is available out of, even out of the faucet in many countries. We live in such benefit in this country, and yet over the last couple of uh, over the last year, several months, we've had just a little bit of a taste of what it might be to be oppressed. Just a little bit of a taste as we have had to give up things that we are used to just enjoying without thinking a thing of. Now, when I say we've had to give things up, I, I mean we've had to give up toilet paper, and movie tickets, but we still have had to learn what it is to go without. We couldn't just run to the grocery store and get what we wanted or go out to eat when we wanted to, how we wanted to. And we've had, we've gotten, had to get used to some of our freedoms being curtailed. Some of us have bristled at the, the fact that we've been told what we have to wear and wearing a mask, and we've been told how far we have to stand apart from each other, and that has not been a comfortable thing for us, and we have complained about it plenty of times on Facebook. We've complained about it, but we have had a small sample of what it is to be oppressed and we have not liked it one bit. And that's not even to mention those who have actually had the virus and had a hard time with it or had to give up work because their family member, uh, take off work because their family member had it or lost their job because of it. And we've known just a small sampling of what it is to be oppressed. And my hope is that the Lord is using this little bit of taste of oppression for us to remind us as confident Americans who know that we can go to the faucet and get tap water whenever we want, the confident Americans that don't worry about our income because we have abundantly more than most of the rest of the world, my hope is that we'll be reminded of one hard truth through all that we've experienced over the last year. And that is, we cannot escape the fact that life in this fallen world is full of oppression. Everyone, everyone experiences oppression at some point in life, whether it is from an overbearing parent or an inconsiderate boss or an abusive spouse or a heavy handed government. Everyone experiences oppression. And some groups know oppression much more acutely than other groups do. My grandfather, Ben Kilpatrick, while he was in Virginia for Navy basic training, getting ready to go into World War II, told me that he regularly saw signs in the yards and on businesses that said, no sailors and no Irish. Unfortunately for granddaddy, he was both. And so he didn't like Virginia very much from that point on. African-Americans have lived with a history of over 300 years of oppression, with 200 years under the horrible institution of slavery, and then another 100 years 
being denied the most basic of civil rights. You know, that fact of oppression is the fact that oppression is such a common experience has led some scholars lately to devise a new philosophy that is called critical race theory or critical theory. And in critical theory, the idea is that everyone is divvied up into into intersectional groups. Everybody is divvied up into groups based on their race, their gender, their sexual orientation. And based on your status within that group, based on the group that you're in, you are given the label of an oppressed group or an oppressor group. And so if you're, for example, a part of a minority group, then you're just automatically a part of an oppressed group. It doesn't matter if you as an individual are the CEO of a a Fortune 500 company or not, but if you're a part of that minority group, you're an oppressed group, or you are oppressed. Or if you're a part of a majority group and your identity is in that group, then you are, by your very nature and by your race or your religion or whatever it might be, you are an oppressor. And this, if you've paid any attention to the news lately, this is the philosophy that's behind what we've uh, termed as woke culture, where uh, people and groups are canceled or our or, or books are canceled or an individual or a celebrity is canceled because they are seen to be saying something that is labeled as oppressive or they have a history that has proven some sort of oppression. But what's, what this naive theory fails to recognize is that every human, every one of us in this room, every one of us out in the world, is simultaneously oppressed and an oppressor. I'm sure that each one of us in this room, if we thought hard enough, could think of ways in which we have been oppressed in our lives. We could think of ways that we have experienced oppression, whether it's from uh, an ex-spouse or whether it's from a parent or whether it's from uh, a business that we were a part of. We can think of ways that we have experienced oppression. But if we are honest with ourselves, we can also think of ways that we have oppressed other human beings. Whether we admit it or not, we in some way and at some point in our own lives have experienced or lived in a system that has oppressed other people. You see, oppression is a part of our human nature. And we find that all the way back at the very beginning when Adam and Eve sinned. Just after they sinned, we find in Genesis chapter 4 that the very next story records an act of oppression as Cain slaughtered his righteous brother Abel out of jealousy. We find it in the people before the flood. Remember the thing that the book of Genesis notes about the people in Noah's day is that they were full of violence. People were oppressing other people because of their bloodlust. We even find it in the chosen people of Israel. Think about Abraham and Sarah. They were oppressed because they were went for 25 years without being able to have a, a child even after God's promise that they would. 
But yet, they were also oppressors because they took a slave girl named Hagar and they used her for their own ends. And after they were done with her, they literally sent her out into the desert and got rid of her. Think about the brothers of Joseph who sold him into slavery because of the jealousy that they had for his father's love. And even though we might sympathize with Joseph, you know that Joseph enjoyed rubbing it in the, the fact that he was going to eventually rule over them. So even Joseph lived as both oppressed and oppressor. Even the great King David, the author of this psalm that we just read, he was a man after God's own heart, oppressed by Saul and chased after by Saul, tried to, uh, Saul tried to murder him. And yet even David went out, lusted after another man's wife, took that wife for himself and then had Uriah, the husband of that woman, Bathsheba, killed so that he could cover his sin. There is no one who can call for God's vindication against their oppressors without also having to fear that God will judge them too. There is not one of us in this room, not one of us in this world who can say, I am justified in wishing vengeance on my fellow man without worrying that that vengeance will consume us as well. There is no one who can earnestly pray what Psalm 22 says in verses 9 and 10 without some hint of hypocrisy. We can't pray, on you was I cast from my birth and from my mother's womb you have been my God. There is no one except Jesus. Jesus alone fits the description that we find in verse 9. You took me from the womb and made me trust at my mother's breast. Jesus alone fits this description because Jesus, as we know, was born of a virgin. He was set apart from his conception to wholeheartedly serve the Lord. And you know the story of Jesus's crucifixion in Matthew chapter 27, verse 46. As Jesus is hanging on the cross, Jesus cries out the first line of Psalm 22 when he says, my God my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, many a sermon has been preached on that one statement. But one thing that I miss is uh, one thing that we miss is something that Donald Whitney suggests, which is that uh, there was a common practice among the Jews when they met for worship, much like what we do with our public readings, where the leader would get up at the beginning of worship, and he would read the first line of a psalm. And then, because it was a common habit in those days for even, especially the males of the congregation to memorize whole passages of Scripture, especially the psalms, then, as that leader read that first line of that psalm, the congregation would respond by reciting the rest of the psalm. And so it would be like us doing a responsive reading here, except as I've read the first line of the psalm, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You all would respond with verses 2 and 3 all the way through verse 31. So just think about that. Jesus, hanging on the cross, calls out the first line, the first verse 
of Psalm 22. And every good Jew standing around him, at least in their minds, would have begun to go through the rest of Psalm 22. And as they did, they would see the unfolding of the fulfillment of that psalm right before them as they thought of Jesus being crucified and the words of that psalm. So there's, I, I want to look at, in the time that we have left, the fact that Jesus fulfills this psalm in its entirety. And I want to look at the way that Jesus, as the true Son of God, took on the oppression of the world and the wrath of God. And I want you to consider three types of oppression that Jesus took in his crucifixion that are prophesied in this psalm. First, Jesus took on the oppression of the rejection of God. In verses 1 and 2, the psalmist calls out because God has forsaken him. Now, when we talk about the crucifixion of Jesus, we tend to focus almost entirely, if not exclusively, on the physical torture that Jesus endured. But I want to suggest to you today that the spiritual separation that Jesus experienced being separated from his father and judged by his father was far greater than any physical torture that he endured. I want to suggest that to you because I know that you, if you have ever experienced uh, hatred or anger or emotional rejection by your loved one, you know that that can be far greater than any physical pain that you might experience. In fact, some people resort to causing themselves physical pain for the sake of relieving the emotional pain that they experience as a, re a part of that hatred or that rejection. But Jesus's experience of the rejection of his father is far greater than anything we can know. Because if you can think about Jesus as the eternal son of God who has always been approved by his father, he has always from eternity past been loved by his father. And now in one instance, all of the hatred and the wrath of God is poured out on him for the sins of the world. The greatest thing that Jesus experienced was the wrath of God forsaken by his father for the sake of the sins of his people. And the second thing that Jesus experienced in this oppression, the second uh, type of oppression in verses 7 and 8 that we see Jesus experiencing is that Jesus took on the oppression of the reviling of men. As Jesus hung on the cross, the religious leaders mocked him with almost the very words of Psalm 22. They call out, he saved others. Why can't he save himself? Now, if you've ever been harassed or bullied or run down, you have a taste of what this would be like. But when we are bullied, we don't have a means to respond. But the Bible says, Jesus tells Pilate that I have 10,000 angels waiting at the word of the Lord to judge you for what you've done. 
Jesus had 10,000 angels standing at the ready. Jesus had all of the power and authority of heaven, and yet he bore the oppression and the reviling of these weak little men so that he might bear our sins for us. Finally, in verses 12 through 18, we see that Jesus took the oppression of relentless abuse. Just as these verses prophesied, as Jesus hung naked on the cross, people would have seen his bones exposed. They would have seen his bones exposed by the whipping that he had already taken by the cat of nine tails, which had pieces of bone and uh, pieces of the pottery tied into the ends of the whip so that it would inflict maximum damage on its victim. They would have seen his bones pulled out of joint hanging there on the cross for all to see. They would have heard him call for water as his tongue stuck to the roof of his mouth. They would have watched as the soldiers gambled over his clothes. So if Jesus was truly the Son of God with a band of 10,000 angels at the ready, why would he endure the wrath of God and man. Why would anybody do such a thing? For one, Jesus bore the wrath of God that he might give us his righteousness. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says that he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Second, he bore the mockery and abuse of men so that he might cover our shame. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 says that Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. But the main reason that Jesus endured the oppression of the cross is so that he might glorify his Father by redeeming those who were afflicted by sin. And this brings me to my second point. The oppressed rejoice in the God of salvation. Now you'll notice as we read this psalm together, you'll notice that starting in verse 19, the second half of Psalm 22 takes a turn from oppression to rejoicing. And that turn is immediate. It's like all of a sudden, no longer is the, the person who is being oppressed under that oppression, but he is rejoicing and praising God. And it all hinges on what the Lord does in verses 19 through 21. In those verses, we find that the Lord comes quickly to the aid of the one who is oppressed, and he delivers his soul and rescues his body. And as a result of that rescue, the psalmist says in verse 22, that he will tell of your name to my brothers and praise you in the midst of the congregation. And it's hard to imagine such a great and immediate shift of fortunes in this oppressed man. In one breath, his bones are out of joint, he's bleeding, he's bleeding out, and in the very next breath, he is rejoicing and praising God in the congregation. How can these things be? And it is because God sees his oppression, he sees his affliction, and he rewards him by restoring his life. This too 
Jesus fulfilled. After his death, he's buried in a tomb and guards are put over his tomb. And on the third day, angels appear and roll away the stone, scare the soldiers stiff in, in the presence of this mighty, these mighty angels. And the disciples come and they find the tomb empty. And the women find Jesus in a new and glorified body before them. Jesus was delivered from the pains of death by his Father because he righteously suffered the oppression of men and God. God approves of his sacrifice, and he proves that by raising him from the dead. And you can imagine just how unbelievable this would be to his disciples because the last they saw him, he was a bloody, beaten, rejected mess. And now he stands before them as a resurrected, glorified son of God. And he does this because his father is the God who is near to the oppressed. And the fact that God rescues the oppressed should motivate us to praise Him. Notice that the psalmist calls us to that very thing. In verse 23, he calls on those who fear the Lord to praise Him. And notice the reason that he gives for calling for that praise in verse 24. In verse 24, he says, For He has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. Jesus' resurrection proves that God has compassion on the afflicted. He will not leave us to our affliction. And the greatest affliction that we have is the affliction of our sin. The greatest problem that we experience in this life is not a mean boss, and it's not an abusive spouse, and it's not a, an overbearing parent, and it's not an overruling government, the greatest oppression that we experience in this life is the sin that we live in and that we commit. And the greatest oppression that we will know at the end of our lives is that our lives will end in death. And Jesus proves that God sees our affliction. Because Jesus died for our sins, and He rose again to conquer death for us so that those who trust in Him have eternal life. So, He goes on to say in verse 27 that the whole world will eventually praise the Lord because of what He does for this oppressed person. And even those who haven't been born yet will hear and know of God's deliverance of the oppressed. And that very thing has happened as the disciples went out into the world and proclaimed the gospel and generation after generation have heard the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And even we here in Georgiana, Alabama, have heard of God's grace towards those who are oppressed. Friend, you may think that your physical or your emotional oppression that you deal with is the greatest problem that you face in this world. But your affliction goes far deeper than that. The greatest need that you have, the greatest oppression that you experience is the oppression of your sin. Sin 
destroys relationships. It taints every good thing. And it will ultimately end in the death and judgment of hell. But Christ has taken the oppression of sin and satisfied the wrath of God for you. He has died so that you might be free from your sin. And He has risen again so that you will be free of the death and judgment that is to come. Won't you trust in Jesus Christ today? Won't you place your faith in Him and profess Him before men that He might profess you before His Father who is in heaven? Brothers and sisters, the redemption that we have in Christ is the greatest motivation that we have to worship. How can we who have been redeemed and who have been set free and now have eternity secured for us through Jesus, how can we not help but praise the God who has saved us and delivered us from our sins? How can we live as though worship were just one option among many in our list of things to do this week? If we truly understand what Jesus has done for us, We can't. We can't just act like this is another thing that we do or another part of our life. This is our life because God has redeemed us from the oppression of sin and death. And therefore, we want to delight in Him because He is the God of our salvation. So may we go from this place finding our truest delight in the God who has delivered us through the cross of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you today knowing that you are indeed a gracious God who has given us everything that we need for life and for our eternal life in your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for the grace that you have shown us in Christ. As we enter into this Easter week and we remember and reflect on the death of Christ in Good Friday and and celebrate His resurrection in our sunrise service and in our Easter celebration on Sunday morning. May we not just do that because it's tradition or because it's uh, something that our parents want us to do. May we do that because it is truly our faith and our desire that we would worship You. Father, thank You that You have set us free from the bondage of sin and death that you have set us free from the oppression of our sin and the judgment that is to come on it. And that because of that, we can go from this place and live freely as children of the Most High God. May we indeed live as children of your kingdom. 